on this episode of the London Lyceum. We talk with Dr. Jesse Owens, David Lytle, and Charles Cook about Arminian Baptists. So we cover all sorts of topics like what is the general free will Baptist tradition? When did it begin? Is this coextensive with the Calvinist streams? Did it start later, earlier, or is it completely different? When did the general and free will Baptist terms begin to be applied and used? What does Arminianism really mean? Do all general and free will Baptists think the same? Who are some important figures in the general Baptist tradition? And why aren't more Baptists or Arminian Baptists popular today and much much more as always if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general hit us up on twitter or facebook or check us out at our website thelondonlyceum.com now for the only analytic baptist and confessional podcast on the planet we think this one's going to get you thinking well i'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the london lyceum i am one of your hosts jordan stefaniak and we are a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church We think the church has lacked serious answers to serious questions, and so we want to sort of resource that uh, for those who listen. But we also want to develop and encourage an intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So when we looked around, me and Brandon, who started the podcast, and realized, you know what, there's just a, a lack of careful thinking about things. We didn't want just critical thinking. We also wanted virtuous thinking. We wanted uh, a thinking that was charitable towards others, that was curious in what they believed and why they believed it, and to have sort of more of a dialogue rather than a lockdown attack debate. I like debates, but in the right spirit and the, the right way. So today, I am thrilled to introduce you all to a couple of guys. So number one, you know Jesse Owens. Jesse Owens is going to be on the show with us today. He's technically a guest, but he's been on the show enough to where he could host it if he wanted to. So Jesse is pastor and professor in Nashville. He's down at Welch College. And if you guys don't listen to Generally Particular, you should. It's also on YouTube. Go check it out. But I also have David Little and Charles Cook with us. Um, I'll let them introduce themselves. David, if I mispronounced your last name, I realized that on air that I didn't think to ask for it. So here we are. David, I'll let you go first. Tell me about yourself and if I got your name right. Okay. Yes, you did mispronounce it. It's it's Lytle, but that is fine. Uh, well, everybody does it. Everybody now knows it is Lytle, and they won't forget it. So you're welcome. Okay. Thank you, sir. So yeah, I am a history teacher in Riverside, California. I did go to Welch College and um, have studied history, and now I'm a PhD student at Gateway Seminary, uh, Southern Baptist Seminary uh, in Southern California. Uh, I spent some time as a missionary uh, teaching. I was a I was a teacher, history teacher in Indonesia and Peru. Um, been through a lot of life. I'm in my I'm 41 years old now, and there's a whole another you know, a lot of a lot of story life story I could give you, but we're not going to do that. We're just going to nerd out. So anyway, that's a little bit about me. Yes, uh, Charles Cook, and I live in Cookville, uh, Tennessee, and I'm an English teacher there. Uh, teach middle school English. Also um, teach online as an adjunct for Randall University out of Oklahoma and teach philosophy, uh, some ethics, and some biblical studies courses for them. Uh, Also attended Welch, where I got a degree in English, secondary ed. Went on and studied at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary uh, part-time for a couple of years at their Charlotte campus while I worked for the Billy Graham Association. And then went to Duke University 
<clears throat> where I worked with uh, the historian Grant Wacker and got a Master of Theological Studies degree from there. And then came back to Cookville, my hometown, and pastored my home church for about nine years. And the past four years, uh, I've been using that English degree, teaching, and uh, for two of the past four years, I've also been a bivocational pastor um, at a little church in town. So that's kind of my uh, background right there. Awesome. Well, thanks, guys. So we're going to be talking about a book that they uh, co-edited together, David and Charles did, called Arminian Baptist, A Biographical History of Free Will Baptists. Jesse wrote several chapters in this book as well. And, you know, it's funny, we're talking about this, like, as the day of this recording, I feel like a week ago, somebody was asking, hey, what are resources on Arminian Baptists? And it, it seems like there really aren't a lot of resources. A lot of the energy has been focused on uh, the so-called particular Baptists and their history. So this, this should be fun to, to talk a little bit about Free Will Baptist, General Baptist. So maybe we begin with just, you know, when I say the terminology of Free Will Baptist or Arminian Baptist, what is that tradition referring to? When did it begin? How did it begin? Is this coextensive with what people think of when they think of particular Baptists? Is this distinct? Those related questions... David, I don't know if you want to take a first crack at it, and then Jesse and Charles, you're welcome to fill in any gaps, or or you can tell us if David's gotten it right. Oh, gosh, I, I was going to let Jesse talk, so but uh, I'll do a little bit on this. Um, the so the first Baptist uh, congregation that most historians recognize is is going to be in England, uh, starting with uh, Thomas Helwes, and he came. You know, he was connected to. John Smith, they were a separatist group. They went to the Netherlands for a while, and then they came back to England. Helwes led his group back to England and started a Baptist congregation. And one of the things about that congregation was that they were also uh, Arminian, in, or at least broadly Arminian. Uh, those, that, that term is going to be hard to, hard to really kind of nail down, especially at this time, which we're talking just a few years after the Synod of Dort. So, um, uh, so you're, you know, the, the terminology is, is not, uh, kind of really well established at that point, but they were definitely more, uh, believing Christ's death for all and the, and those sorts of things. So that's kind of when the Baptist tradition begins, uh, a few years later, uh, uh, another separatist church, is more Calvinistic, and they become what we know as the particular Baptist. Um, and then in the 1640s is when you start seeing uh, groups coming along, led by uh, Thomas Lamb and Henry Dinn, uh, who are preaching Christ's death for all and who are pre- preaching um, believer's baptism. And so those are, you know, there's no denomination. There's no, you know, there's not a lot of formal structure behind those things. Uh, which makes things really messy, uh, for sure, for historians. And there's a lot of different interpretation on how to get into all, you know, those groups, how how to actually define them. Uh, but certainly by the end of the 17th century, you are seeing uh, the standard confession or the brief confession of General Baptist being used pretty widely, and you're seeing you know, associations that are kind of binding themselves based on their belief in believers' baptism and based on their belief in uh, Christ's death for all uh, as kind of two major 
linchpins for what they believe and how they how they're organizing themselves. Uh, Jesse, why don't you correct me on on all that kind of stuff? No, I, I don't have anything to correct. Uh, the only thing I would add to that is so obviously uh, David has talked about the the Hellwist Church, and obviously after Thomas Hellwist, you have John Merton, who's a significant early. English General Baptist, and then by the 1650s, you have sort of the General Assembly uh, of General Baptist, and then by 1660, you have uh, the Confession and a Brief Confession or Standard Confession, which David mentioned. Uh, for how this connects, though, for how the General Baptist co uh, tradition connects with Free Will Baptist, which is kind of one of the things that we're talking about, um, and it's sometimes referred to as the General Free Will Baptist tradition by Baptist historians. Um, in the American South, you have the use of some versions of or abbreviated versions of the Standard Confession uh, among some general Free Will Baptists um, by the, uh, certainly by the, uh, the mid-1700s and going into the, the 19th century for sure. Uh, so there, there are some sort of genetic connections and then there are some sort of theological, ideological connections uh, to General Free Will Baptist in the South. And there's, there's some correspondence right around the turn of the century between uh, the 1600s and going into the 1700s between uh, General slash Free Will Baptist in, in America, in the colonies, uh, and the English General Baptist, uh, at least the General Association of General Baptists. There's a split between the General Assembly uh, and the General Association right around the 1700s. So I've got to know, David, you mentioned terminology of like the extent of the atonement essentially was a big distinguishing factor. Are, are there other things that you would say this is distinguishing Arminians from more Calvinistic Baptists? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. Um, there's a recent article by uh, historian Stephen Holmes that actually tries to argue that the 17th century general Baptists weren't theologically Arminian. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think there's you know, definitely debate on that. So the, the term Arminian can kind of, it's, I think it has less uh, specific meaning in a lot of ways because, and this is kind of what I'll say about a lot of this conversation, uh, you don't, it, it lacks the institutional kind of force behind, you know, when you have the, the Reformed churches and the, like the Dutch Reformed churches and then the Westminster Confession in, in England, you really have, here are the parameters of what it means to be Calvinist. And you, know, you have these, these, these confessional documents, whereas you, you lack that with Arminianism. And so what does it actually mean? And I, I think you could definitely call a lot of these people like like Thomas Grantham, who, who will talk about uh, Arminian in their theology. Uh, but there there's not as many kind of boxes to check that this is what it means. So I think you find probably a more theological diversity. Uh, one thing, you know, one chapter I wrote in this is on Thomas Lamb, you know, this early proponent for baptism by immersion. Well, perhaps the first, uh, according to to some historians, he's the first to to propose baptism by immersion in in the English uh, context, uh, English Baptist context. Um, so Lamb was hated the term Arminian and hated to be associated with it. Uh, he wrote books against uh, an Arminian theologian, John Goodwin, uh, who was a uh, an independent in in London at the time. 
and really kind of railed against him. And it's very, you know, it's a very polemical age of the 1640s. There is a, it's in the middle of a war, right? Or you know, this was actually right after the, the Civil War, but uh, it's a very divisive time. It's kind of like Twitter. Um, it, there's very, a lot of overlap, but he really hated the term Arminian, um, but he still was going to die on the hill of Christ died for all. In, in a way that Calvinists would, would not accept. And, and so he, he sort of is a man without a country in, in the sense of he's not going to be accepted by the particular Baptist. Um, he never even signs a confessional document of, associated with, with the general Baptist, although a lot of what he started and the momentum he started really lays the groundwork for this general Baptist denomination that emerges. Um, so I guess the answer, I don't know, uh, to, to the question is there's, there is probably a lot of theological diversity um, that, that, that's coming out of this movement, probably, it, which, which to some general Baptists leads to some heretical uh, ideas uh, with, with Christology later on in the century with Matthew Caffin. Um, but overall, I think just not having those kind of institutional, the institutional force of things like this is what the state says we believe, or this is what the Westminster Confession or whatever it is, it leads to a good bit of theological diversity, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It can just be taken in bad, bad directions. I think general atonement is a a huge part of that. And David is right to point that out. I think conditional election, if we're looking at the confessional statements, conditional election seems to be there uh, pretty consistently in the, in the confessional statements. Just the general idea of the resistibility of, of grace uh, to an extent is there. In fact, even in Helwes' confession in 1611, which is a confession attributed to his entire congregation, is the possibility of falling from grace. Uh, as well. Um, that I wouldn't say that that belief is necessarily universal, uh, but you do find it, I think, in the confessional statements, and you find it even uh, from, from the earliest instance there with, with Helwes. So those are, those are all uh, key components that might distinguish general Baptists from particular Baptists. And, and there are others that we could draw on, things that, that are distinct to them. One of the things that the general Baptist debate in the mid-17th century, which is really hot, uh, and, uh, and a big source of tension and debate is uh, how to read Hebrews 6 uh, or, and the laying on of hands. Um, and so uh, that, that's a, a big thing that, that they debate and people fall on different sides about. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, th- there is a connection, I think, with Arminius uh, and, and the early remonstrance, not the, probably not the, the later remonstrance because they kind of go astray. Uh, on some some key things, but there there is some continuity, I think, with the Reformed tradition, with Arminius himself, uh, and you see it in some of the confessional statements too. Okay, I was going to ask about John Davenant and hypothetical universalism, and see like how close are some to saying yes, that would be an appropriate way to think. Is that a, I guess maybe not an appropriate way, but is that a within the bounds of what you could? confess as an Arminian or general Baptist Davenant's hypothetical universalism. I don't know if you're not super familiar with Davenant stuff, that's fine. We can move on, but that's just in my mind of what I'm thinking about. I've no Jordan. I've had the same question. I just don't know the answer to the question. Okay, cool. I, I, and, and Jesse knows a lot more about monk than I do, but I see a similar 
way of thinking in in Lamb and in kind of his successor is Henry Din, uh, and both of those guys uh, really make an impact on on the early movement in the 1640s and 50s, and then they kind of pass off the scene, and the, the denominational movement kind of comes in the in the late 50s and 60s, and so um, but those guys I think are a lot more along those lines of a of you know Amaraldian or hypothetical universalist. Um, I I see a little bit of that tradition in Monk, um, from what I've read of like the the Monk's Orthodox creed, uh, but but Jesse might might disagree with me on that. But I just don't know. I don't. I have not found specific references to him in their writings, and they might exist. You know, they they I may have not been looking for him at the time when I was reading them, or I'm going kind of going back and reading some of that stuff, um, and I I don't know. I don't know if there is a specific uh, influence there, and I don't know if those guys influence very Monk very much. But it seems like there's a, a strain of thinking that is similar to that, is a, a more of an Amaraldian approach to salvation than a traditional Arminian or Calvinist one. Yeah, that's something I'd have to give some more thought to. I, I haven't read. I mean, I've obviously read Monk very closely, but I haven't haven't given a lot of thought to the Davenant connection. I keep telling myself I'm going to buy that Davenant volume in the in the Oxford Historical Theology series. Way too expensive. I think you've had the author of that on here, um, and I it's in my Amazon uh, wish list. I just haven't uh, uh, pulled the trigger on that yet. But um, I, I haven't seen any references to Davenant. But that's not to say that maybe some haven't read it. I, I would, my guess is though, that it's probably just a, a more general sort of Arminian approach to um, general atonement. But uh, but it's worth looking into. I do know that there is some discussion of this. I think David referenced a moment ago uh, an article uh, from Stephen Holmes recently, and I want to say that he says that Clint Bass in his book on Thomas Grantham. Uh, maybe traces some sort of uh, hint of hypothetical universalism in one general Baptist theologian. I, I don't know that it's Grantham. It might have might have been Monk, but that's not something I've I've given a lot of thought to. I need to look into that more. Yeah, the the person you're referencing is Michael Lynch. So if if you're listening and you want to go listen to it, he talked to us about hypothetical universalism and John and John Davenant, and how that contrasted with Owen's death of death and in the death of Christ and, and such. And if you have institutional access, I'll mention this for all you guys who are have university access of some sort. Oxford typically puts those volumes online for free if you have institutional access where you can get those PDFs. So if it's an Oxford series, oftentimes you can circumvent the $120 hardback price if you're okay with a PDF. So maybe that's an approach you can go because I found the volume very... Very enlightening, and I feel that Michael Lynch is one of those uniquely passionate people to listen to. So I enjoy his stuff. Um, so by the question, way, if, yeah, go if ahead. this is who I'm thinking about, I, I want to say I actually presented a paper one year at ETS on John Goodwin, and I think it was in the same section as him, and he was he was very exciting to listen to. <laughs> it's probably he was very passionate. <laughs> uh, I do have a question about these terms we've used: general free will. Um, Arminian, are these terms, are, are we safe saying they're roughly synonymous? Um, and maybe the question, or maybe, I guess maybe the answer is they weren't synonymous. Now they functionally are. Whoever wants to take that. 
So our general general free will and Arminian are I, I'm probably using them synonymously. I think if we were to ask the whole historical component, like when are these words first used and things like that, typically free will Baptist, I think in the American context is uh, the term is used in a pejorative way uh, to reference Arminian Baptist in the American context. And then they sort of embrace that. Uh, obviously, you have General Baptist referred to as General Baptist in the English context, certainly in the 18th century. Uh, we can think about later, you know, with Dan Taylor and the, the New Connection and things like that. You do have the term actually used. Um, and, and I've actually seen a couple of occasions, even in the 17th century, where uh, Arminian Baptist or General Baptist might refer to Calvinist Baptist as particulars. So there, there is something of that already there. Uh, but when I think about our, when I think about General Baptist or the general free will Baptist tradition, sometimes uh, I'll say, and, and others use that, that terminology, I am thinking of those as synonymously. But I think as David and everyone else will point out, uh, how Arminianism is used is really uh, notoriously broad uh, and is probably unhelpful. Um, there, there's a lot of divergence and disagreement on this. Uh, I do see within the General Baptist um, tradition, certainly in the 17th century, and, and figures like Thomas Monk, but also in Thomas Grantham and even in Thomas Helwes, a significant drawing on, I think, the, the theology of uh, Arminius. At least there's a consistency uh, between the two. And so sometimes in, in the circles of folks that uh, that I interact with, we might call this Reformed Arminianism, um, and that's to sort of make a connection between uh, Arminianism as, as we affirm it and, and a continuity between Arminius himself that differs from some maybe Wesleyan forms of Arminianism, 18th century, 19th century forms of Arminianism. So I, I'm using those terms sort of synonymously, uh, the, what you mentioned earlier, but obviously there's a significant amount of variety uh, when other people are using them, for sure. Yeah, the term Ar Arminianism really, yeah, it is, it is tricky, and I think mo a lot of people in this in this book, especially early on, would not like to be associated with the term, and it's mostly just because of their context polemically. Um, the and you think about the early or the 17th century when there's an archbishop laud that really is pushing a lot of high church and you could even say sort of catholic leaning policies into the church of england and of course the puritans are reacting heavily to that most of the puritans are pretty calvinistic although you have people like goodwin that aren't and so to be arminian for most people at that time was to be uh, on the wrong side politically as well. And so you're really going to have a lot of people running away from it. And then even in the, in the 18th century, like you mentioned Dan Taylor, uh, Jesse, and uh, I, I, I just took a seminar on Andrew Fuller and, and studied kind of his, his exchanges with, with Taylor. And for Fuller, uh, when he would list heretical views, you know, so Fuller's a particular Baptist, really influential, you know, he has a list and it's, it's 
Arianism, Socinianism, and Arminianism is the way he, you know, or or something like that, or like Universalism and, and Unitarianism and Arminianism. They would always kind of fall in these views, uh, and that's kind of his thinking. And even Taylor's not running around saying, hey, I'm Arminian. He would say, oh, I don't like these labels. I'm just looking at the scripture. So I think that's a lot of times what you'll see. Um, uh, so you, you know, it's hard to really just give a label to this um, in that sense. And even like Jesse pointed out, the term free will Baptist starts off as an insult and, and it, uh, gets accepted a little bit later on. Um, I actually really kind of prefer the term general Baptist, uh, but I didn't, you know, I wasn't born and raised in a general Baptist house. I was, I was you know, my parents were actually free will Baptist missionaries. Uh, and so, uh, I didn't get to choose the name. Uh, <laughs> Understood. So I'd love for each of you to give me uh, just a couple minutes on particular one of the figures that maybe you wrote a, wrote a chapter on. I know some of you wrote more uh, chapters, so you can just pick one that you'd like to talk about. And give me just like that little bit, like you don't have to tell me their whole life story, but just like situate their context and then tell me a little bit about the importance for why, why they matter for either Baptists today or even non-Baptists. Because we have a lot of people who aren't Baptists who listen and just give them like, actually, you should care about this person because of X, Y, or Z. I enjoyed um, one individual that I wrote about, and that was E.L. St. Clair. And this sort of gets to the question of what what do the do, do free will Baptists, general Baptists, Arminianism, is that designating the same thing? And E.L. St. Clair, there's some things he has going on that remind us, well, not even the designation free will Baptist means the same thing to each person you're talking about. There are some things they have in common, like the extent of the atonement. Um, but St. Clair, he, uh, there are a lot of things that he would believe that are similar to folks today that call themselves Reformed, Arminian, Reformed Arminians that he had an agreement. But he had a view of, uh, original sin that is different than what you're going to read in a Leroy Four Lines um, or Matt Pinson, who's done a lot of work in his Free Will Baptist Handbook, at least the first edition, where he talks about, Pinson talks about what Free Will Baptists have believed. E.L. St. Clair has, at least in one sermon that he preached that apparently was, uh, it was put in pamphlet form, and apparently he preached it to some popularity, according to the back of one of the pamphlets, uh, and he just had a different vision of original sin and inherited sin and really rejected um, the idea of inherited sin and had a different explanation for that. Um, so I, I fall more in the Reformed Arminian camp, but it, it was enlightening to read uh, how he presented his views and helpful as a historian to see like, okay, this is a way that free will Baptist um, doctrine uh, has either developed or ways that they veered away from what Grantham or maybe even some of the confession said. Uh, and then later on through Leroy Fourlines, Robert Pickerel and some others, how they have realigned back with Arminius and Grantham and some of these guys. So I, I found St. Clair just instructive. He also planted a lot of churches and debated, uh, in the best use of that word, debated other uh, folks from other theological backgrounds and wrote quite a bit. So um, I found him really helpful for understanding the context 
of Free Will Baptist prior to the formation of the National Association, which happened in the 1930s, and he's kind of operating right before that. Right. Let me just give you a quick flyover of the book, and then I'll dive into somebody. So what it is, it's just a bi- it's just a collection of biographies, and we edited it. We got different scholars to contribute, and it is it sort of starts with 17th century General Baptist, which is what we've been talking about mostly, and then it goes to the American context of of Free Will Baptist denomination, uh, which is a you know smaller denomination. Uh, but uh, most Baptist denominations are small unless you're the SBC. Um, and so, and there are, there are Baptist denominations that aren't SBC. Uh, no offense. Um, so that's, you know, it's a biographical history. So it's going to give these major, major figures. And for us, we, we wanted to do this as kind of an introduction because, because of being in a small denominational context, we just don't have as much, you know, we don't have seminaries that are, they have scholars that are constantly pushing out books on our on our history, and I and I came up with the idea of reading a Baptist history book, and I love Baptist history and thinking, oh, well, there's a story that's particular to our context that that just doesn't get told, so let's tell it, and let's talk about these people, um, and and so that, that that's kind of the the idea, and the the idea is how can we introduce people to uh, the major characters and invite them to further research. So what we'd love to do is people say, hey, um, I'm influenced, you know, usually it's going to be people that are, that are already influenced by this tradition and say, I'd love to pick up more and study this person or this person or this person. Um, so one of the ones that I, I wrote on is um, Paul Palmer. And Paul Palmer is, is one of those big links between the English General Baptist and the uh, the American Free Will Baptist. He comes to the U.S. He comes to North Carolina. He preaches all around North Carolina, Maryland. Uh, he actually visits the Charleston Church, which is a which is a Calvinist Baptist church in in South Carolina. But he visits there. They have sort of an Arminian remnant, a General Baptist remnant there in Charleston. Uh, so they're confessionally Calvinist, but they but they're the only Baptist church in in town and. There's not a lot of options in colonial South Carolina. So he visits them. This is in the 1720s that he's really active and just is preaching all over the Carolinas as well as other colonies. Um, his The church that he started is Southern Baptist. Uh, it's the first Baptist church in, in North Carolina, uh, but it's, it's now Southern Baptist. But he really did start a movement of a—he uh, was a general Baptist. He— he brought over, uh, and his family's, you know, had had Grantham's uh, uh, theology there that they kind of referred uh, to, and and so he brings over General Baptist ideas into the colonies, and and really sets the groundwork for what becomes the Free Will Baptist Churches in North Carolina, which North Carolina has been a stronghold for the Free Will Baptist denomination more so than other states. Um, so anyway, Paul Palmer is a significant figure in Baptist history uh, as a whole, but specifically with with general Free Baptist history. Yeah, one of my uh, chapters is on Thomas Monk, um, who is a significant English general Baptist. 
He is living in the mid-17th century, and probably the, the two most important works uh, that he's involved in writing are, the first one is A Cure for the Cankering Error of the New Eutychians, and there's more to it than, than that. That's just the sort of abbreviated title. Uh, Monk is, uh, he's a farmer theologian, and he's both of those things. He's a farmer and, and, a, and a significant theologian. Um, he draws on not only the Reformed tradition, but he's, he's clearly been exposed through source books or in some way uh, to Nicaea, Chalcedon, Constantinople, and early church theologians. And so in A Cure for the Cankering Error, Monk is living in an age in which there is in England a rise of anti-Trinitarianism and heretical Christology. And he marshals the arguments, the language of Nicaea and Chalcedon, to argue against these heretical Christologies. And within, among the General Baptists, um, Matthew Caffin is a significant figure and is for half a century, over half a century. Um, but there are claims that Matthew Caffin affirms heterodox Christology. And I think in part, Monk is responding to Caffin's heterodox Christology with this massive work just... Uh, again, drawing on the tradition in a variety of ways and giving this uh, incredibly com complex response to these various heretical Christologies, and then also giving a positive uh, presentation of Orthodox Christology uh, that's really significant. He's also involved in the development of an Orthodox creed, which is signed by at least 55 uh, General Baptists in the Midlands there in England. It's not adopted as the Confession of the General Assembly, uh, but it is, it is significant. And within that work, you see the contextual nature of it there as well, because there are multiple articles dealing with Christology. So you, you can sort of see the contextual nature. But again, Monk just marshals the language of Nicaea, Chalcedon, and the early church fathers and the Reformed tradition to argue for Orthodox uh, Christology in, in a very nuanced, precise way, which again, to me, is, is always so amazing. Again, thinking about his situation of growing up in the house of a farmer, being a farmer, but also being a theologian. There's also this really interesting account that I think your, your listeners might be interested in, uh, with uh, with Thomas Monk and William Kiffin. Uh, there are some Baptists imprisoned in Aylesbury, and there's some debate about whether Monk is imprisoned or whether Monk goes to find Kiffin. But anyways, uh, it, it seems as if Monk sets out, goes to London, locates William Kiffin, and then William Kiffin, who's very wealthy and very well-connected, uh, as a particular Baptist, then basically pulls some strings and has these Baptists in Ellsbury uh, released from prison. Um, but I think one of the things that your listeners, though, could draw from this is thinking about Thomas Monk as just an, an average pastor uh, in, in sort of an agrarian context, um, but then has somehow uh, achieved this great level of learning and is able to put together these complex treatises and confessions of faith to deal with these very serious but nuanced issues uh, of his own day by drawing on the best parts of the Christian tradition, uh, I think is instructive for, for all of us who have much more access uh, to resources than someone like Thomas Monk would have. Uh, but he's significant in, in the English General Baptist uh, tradition in the 17th century, but I think going into, uh, into, into the American context as well. I think it might be good 
for your listeners too, um, Jesse, he made a comment that I, I fully agree with about we have so much um, more ease of access to researching and um, just all sorts of materials, just that online now, if you know where to look, you can, you can find all sorts of things. And part of uh, the struggle with Free Will Baptist history in the past has been, really, it's just been recently through, through the work of Robert Piccarelli and the Historical um, Association of the National Association, which again, wasn't founded until the 1930s. And it took later before the Historical Commission really got going. They have done a lot of work in compiling uh, our history and the documents that, that have made this kind of work then possible. And you combine that with the work done in the English uh, General Baptist and, and particular Baptist tradition, all the great work done in the last century and the beginning of this century has made this type of research and a more complex and nuanced understanding of Baptist history and general free will Baptist history in particular has made it much more possible. Um, so we I mean, we live in a moment where a lot of resources are now available that previous historians didn't have, especially in the Free Baptist tradition, because uh, in the South, at least, we just didn't have academic institutions where people were doing that type of work. Most of our pastors in the Southern tradition were either farming, lots of them were farmers, and they just didn't have time or access to these type of things. Um, so, so there's a reason why this work has emerged at this moment in our history. And a lot of it has to just do with the resources are available um, to us now to be able to do it. Yeah. No, that totally makes sense. I'm sorry, Jordan, we're cutting you off. It's like, it's like you're not even in charge of this thing. We're just taking over. It's a mutiny here. No, I'm I'm sorry. Well, would my will be subservient to yours in some sense, you know? All right. First of all, Jordan, let, let me say this. I have yet to say this, and it, we're like 50 minutes in. I'm a big fan, actually. I listen to nearly every London Lyceum podcast, so I'm a fanboy. Um, <laughs> like I'm getting to, to hang out with my favorite rock band from high school. I think David um, might actually be a paid subscriber. I can do that. Oh, I am. I have paid my $3. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, yeah, that's coming out of my bank account. Um, no, um, no, I, there's a, a couple things that I, I want to say as far as the, uh, Charles's point and just to build on the things that have been said. Uh, I realize as I'm a his, historian or aspiring historian or whatever I am, um, institutions are so significant, right? And we don't think about it. I, I remember a, uh, interview, a podcast interview. I don't think it was your podcast, but it was with uh, Keith Stanglin, who wrote with Thomas McCall. Uh, he's written two books on Jacob Arminius and another one on Armi- after Arminius. And I remember him talking about how Richard Moeller, their, uh, their advisor, told them or told Stanglin, you should research Arminius, uh, which is kind of surprising coming from Moeller, right? Um, uh, and, and they're at Calvin College, and it's not really, a, you know, uh, what people do there. Uh, but his point was, well, uh, no one else has researched this. And it is interesting to think, when you think about the, the age old Calvinism Arminian debate, um, there are scores or thousands of books on Calvin's theology, right? Um, 
the amount of actual academic work on Arminius's theology, um, probably two, three books, um, at least at least recently, re- recent academic works. Uh, so my point is institutions really matter. Um, and so that's one reason why we, we want to do this is to get this out um, and have people that are maybe connected to our tradition or care about our tradition uh, really follow up with, with academic research that, that is meaningful. Um, the other thing I was going to say, as far as people, I think we have to mention, and I know his name has been mentioned, but Robert Piccarelli uh, is a Free Will Baptist scholar. Um, he's, he's older now. He's, he's published more books in his retirement than he has in his, uh, when he was, uh, active, you know, teaching and he wrote and contributed to our book. Uh, he did a bunch of historical research just for the, um, the archives and he, uh, we also spotlight him in one of the articles because he, he is a really solid, if you're looking for a uh, a resource on Arminian Baptist theology. Uh, I mean, his his books, like Grace, Faith, Free Will, uh, are just very accessible, but also really solid. He's a he's a great exegete. He's a he's a Bible you know top notch Bible scholar, and I think he does a great job. So I think I just want to throw out his name in there, just because we all really appreciate his stuff, and it would be a good resource. Awesome. So you did mention this idea of institutions and the necessity of them. And does that mean that for, I mean, the reality, Arminian Baptists, I feel like, don't have the same sort of research dedicated to them as more Calvinistic Baptists. Is that part of the reason? Is because Arminian Baptists, for whatever reason, don't have the same institutional structure? Or are there other external factors that have contributed to less research on them. I can give you, a, uh, and I'm not claiming this is an all-encompassing answer because I'm sure it's not, but here here are several factors that have contributed um, to the lack of research. And another question uh, that you had sent us ahead of time, of like why, why are there fewer Armenian Baptist congregations that identify that way? Um, so here are just a couple of things that contribute to that. One, your listeners may or may not know that the Northern Baptist, Northern Free Will Baptist movement did have a number of uh, colleges. Hillsdale College was started by Free Will Baptists. There was Cobb Divinity School in Maine um, and, and several others. And they had uh, a fairly robust uh, intellectual tradition that was that was. Uh, being birthed during the 1800s. And then in the 1900s, early early 1900s, the Northern Free Will Baptist movement merged with Northern Baptist. And when they merged with Northern Baptist, they lost their distinct identity. And the American Baptist, uh, I believe it's still called the American Baptist denomination of the day, are the heirs of that Northern Baptist movement. So when that merger occurred, they... Um, they lost those institutions and they lost uh, the, the majority of their churches in that merger. They just lost their distinct uh, identity. So that the loss of the whole Northern movement, um, I mean, eradicated, you know, 
I don't know if half's the right answer, but it, it eradicated the whole northern half. And they were strong in parts of the northeast, uh, really on this side of the eastern side of the Mississippi River. They, they had a strong tradition. They were very involved in the anti-slavery movement. Um, some of the strongest abolitionists were found in the northern Free Will Baptist movement. And so, you know, you have uh, the beginning of the 20th century, that whole tradition just disappears and, um, you know, becomes emerged within the Northern Baptists. So you have that happening. Uh, in the South, um, those first congregations by Palmer, most of them, and I think Jesse and Dave, they can give more detail on this if they want to, but they, uh, Calvinist preacher came to North Carolina, and I don't know if you want to use the word converted or what word we want to use, but some of those early congregations, they... Uh, they moved into Calvinism away. So some of those first congregations were lost. Then it seems like as free will Baptists get going in the South, then a number of ministers and congregations, they move over to the Church of Christ as that movement begins to really explode in the Southeast. Then you have the Civil War, which kind of stops everybody. And then in North Carolina, you do um, get, uh, right at the end of the 1800s, being the 1900s, you get a seminary started there. Um, it provided uh, elementary and high school education. They had a theological course for ministers, and that begins to develop. And then the Great Depression hits, and the institution goes under. Uh, so all those things contribute to why we haven't don't have the intellectual tradition here in, here in America. Um, those are all contributing factors. And then, and this might be a little more debated, um, when we do get uh, institutions going, the National Association is formed in the 50s and 60s and 70s. The Independent Baptist Movement has a big influence on Free Will Baptist. And um, I think in some ways, Free Will Baptists maybe limited themselves. They, some congregations and and even within the high, I don't know if hierarchy is the right word, but there, there became a lot of rules. And if you didn't check these maybe unwritten rules off, it, it, you know, you might not have felt comfortable in a free will Baptist church um, during that time period. And I think that probably hurt us some as well, how some of that played out. Um, so all those things are contributing factors, I think. You know, Dave, Jesse, what do you guys, how would you answer that? Well, before they go, Charles, I, I want I had a follow up on the, the story you told about the, the Northern Baptists and how they, they merged and lost that identity. What was the like rationale be behind the merger? Well, um, so a couple of things. Uh, so think about the main barriers to merger, uh, the act of feet washing. So for many free Baptist churches, the majority, I think you could say, practice feet washing. And so uh, that was true in the North at first, but over time that became less and less and less. So this sort of outward ritual that you would do disappears among the northern or among many northern free will baptists the same time that is happening many uh northern baptists begin to adopt uh open communion and so when you adopt open communion i mean that was a big barrier if free will baptists are saying hey open communion as long as you're a christian you're here you can do this if other baptists are saying no you cannot you know we're not going to practice open communion but as open communion began to get adopted, that removed another barrier between the two groups. And then this is where we need more research. 
But one of the big leaders in the Free Will Baptist movement was Alfred Williams Anthony, who studied with Harnick in Germany. He taught, I believe, at Cobb Divinity School. He was very involved uh, in the institutions of the Northern Free Will Baptist movement. And he really bought into the unity ecumenical spirit that was really exploding in the early 1900s. And he really pushed this merger and this idea of, hey, the reasons that we've been separate no longer exist. Um, and so he, you know, Williams promoted that. And uh, I think sometimes Williams is presented as this boogeyman that he forced the group to do it. I don't think that's true. I think he just, he did promote it and he was the biggest pusher of it. But clearly there were others who were ready to go along with this and ready to, ready to merge. Um, so those factors, the, I think the disappearance of feet washing, the Northern Baptists, many of them embracing open communion, and then this ecumenical spirit, and you had a big pusher of it in, in, uh, in Williams on the Free Will Baptist side, all those things contributed uh, to that merger. Hmm. And there's a social so, factor. I mean, I, at least I personally, there is. After the Civil War, the nation's trying to bind itself and that cultural, social movement of these divisions are not good and the nation's got to bind itself. You know, I don't I think it's hard for us to appreciate how strong that was and how this generation after the Civil War, many of them felt like, yeah, we've got to do this because we don't want this type of division to happen again. And so you've got this this social current that I think is also feeding into, Hey, it'd be better if Christian groups could unify instead of emphasizing our differences. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So as, as we come to a close with this episode, I, I'd love to hear each of you a little bit just on what you think the future of Arminian Baptist looks like. Maybe that's you're you're giving advice for saying, I want more people to research this, or maybe it's sort of like a predictive prophecy I'm kidding, uh, but you get the idea. Like, what is, what does the future look like? What what do you hope it looks like? I, I'll, I'll go first. I um, I mean, I think we've seen a lot of promising things within our own tradition, within our own denomination, over the last, I don't know, three decades or so. Charles um, mentioned some of them, but I think that we have seen an increase in our circles of people getting, um higher levels of education and getting involved in scholarship in various fields, uh, some in historical theology, uh, history, systematic theology, all sorts of things. And I think that's significant for us as a movement to, uh, to do work in theology, to do work in history, to do work in other fields. And so I, I think that's a, a big component. One of the things that, that I've been really encouraged by and has been a significant part of my own life is the recovery of the general Baptist tradition and that connection with uh, Free Will Baptist in America, which this book does a lot for a, the lay level person in creating uh, or making those connections clear. Um, I think that uh, Charles mentioned uh, Robert Piccarelli. I think David mentioned Leroy Fourlines ever uh, earlier. Those are two significant theologians in the last uh, 50 to 60 years for our movement. And uh, the idea of Reformed Arminianism or Reformation Arminianism, that is distinct from Wesleyan Arminianism, the recovery of that, I think the growth of interest in that. Um, there are a lot of people in the SBC, I think, responding to what they feel like is sort of a resurgence, at least was a resurgence of Calvinism within the denomination. 
uh, in the conservative resurgence and sort of then beyond that, have started reading Piccarelli, have started reading Four Lines. So you have a lot of SBC folks who would not identify as Arminian Baptists, uh, but they are drawing heavily on these theologians and, and in many ways on our tradition. And, and that seems to be growing and increasing. Um, and, and I find that encouraging, if not uh, for people embracing it, uh, which if I'm being honest, I hope more people do, uh, but at least for the purpose of increased awareness of, of this tradition. David mentioned earlier, and I, I think it's sort of a funny little note, uh, that in Fuller you kind of get, Andrew Fuller, you get uh, Socinianism, you know, Unitarianism, and Arminianism, or he gives these a list, you know, of these sort of gross heresies and Arminianism gets tossed in there. I think for a lot of Calvinists, uh, whether we're talking about Presbyterians or Calvinist Baptists, that tends to be the idea that they have of Arminianism. There's sort of this boogeyman. But there is this more rich, textured, uh, theologically reformed stream of Arminian thought that exists in the English General Baptist and then even to the present. And I hope that more and more people will become acquainted with that, rediscover that, and I hope people's interest in it grows. Yeah, I just echo, I agree with everything Jesse uh, just said, and I think um, like Jesse, I've, I've benefited from uh, Robert Piccarelli and Leroy Fourlines. And, and one bright spot from today, I mean, probably Matt Pinson's done as much as anybody to make people outside our own movement aware of, um, you know, what our movement's about, and particularly the Reformed Armenian tradition. He's, he's explained that uh, well in lots of contexts. So I, I think the generation uh, or two before me if you, especially if you were um, drawn to uh, an intellectual tradition or even a historical tradition, it, you may it might have felt like you didn't fit among Free Will Baptists because it just it, that tradition just wasn't there to the degree it is now. Um, and so I I do feel like a lot of people my age and lower they feel like there's a place for them in Free Will Baptist where maybe certain types of individuals with certain interests just maybe felt like they reached a dead-end road with Free Will Baptist. They just didn't quite fit. Um, and so I think that I think that's a good, uh, good thing. I think Armenian Baptists face the same difficulties that lots of groups now, and a lot of those um, have to do with challenges towards Christianity just in general. I think a really bright spot is overseas, uh, the growth of Armenian Baptists and our mission works, uh, particularly in India. Uh, there are a number of Russian Baptists that identify with the Armenian tradition, and I could give some other examples, but I think that is encouraging, and I think their example is actually strengthening um, those of us back here in the States, and I think that's a positive development uh, as well. Yeah, let me just... Uh quickly promote, if you're looking for another great resource, Matt Benson, who we've talked about a little bit, his book, uh, 40 Questions on Arminianism, is is a very good book. Um, it's in that series. I love the, I think the series is fantastic. It's real short chapters, um, just, but but really good content. Uh, the uh, He also wrote a couple chapters for our book, so uh, you can buy both of those things. It would be fantastic. Um, but, uh, this doesn't totally answer, I, I'm not sure as far as what the future is 
Um, I, I do live in a place, I, I live out in California in a town. There's no free will Baptist churches around. I, I'm, I'm in an SBC church and uh, ha- happy there and at an SBC seminary. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like have one foot in the door, one foot out, you know, being, being all the way out, out where, I, where I am. But um, I'll just, just as far as the overall Arminian Baptist movement, um, uh, one thing that was asked, I think, in one of the, the questions before uh, we got going was, why is it not more popular these days? And in a way, it, it is. Yeah. Uh, if you think about what Thomas Helwes was standing up for, he was standing up for religious toleration. He was standing up for Christ's universal death and believer's baptism. Well, just about any non-denominational group or Pentecostal group believes all of those things. And those churches are exploding all over this country and all over the world. Uh, so, no, there's not just a—I mean, there are free will Baptists that are growing in various pockets around the world, as Charles mentioned. But th- this tradition, uh, which, again, maybe uh, when it comes to institutions, it might be kind of porous— um, but this tradition is quite large. The tradition of, of Christ, you know, universal atonement and believers' baptism; um, those things are uh, very pervasive in the evangelical world. Um, and even the, the church that I attend is is you know it's SBC, but those are kind of hallmarks of this church that that, that I that I attend. And, and so I think that's that shows no, maybe not. Um, a complete influence of the free will Baptist movement itself. But those ideas that the general Baptist started uh, have not gone away. And I think the church is better for them uh, because it's given a, it's given a lot of missionary vitality to the, to the global church. Uh, Jordan, awesome. I, and, and you may not want to answer this or maybe some of think about, I, um, I think it was, it was in the early 2000s, and I believe his Lifeway did a study and kind of the heat of the whole Calvinism debate within the SBC. And I believe 10% of the pastors that they surveyed identified as Calvinist. What are the other 90%? Are they modified Arminians? Like, I, I, I mean, I tend to look at what a lot of them espouse and preach and say, um, at least the ones I know, and I'm like, well, that's a modified form. Like that's Arminianism plus eternal security. And I think there might even be some debate on what Arminius actually believed about that. But like, I'm like, well, some of this sounds like you're Arminian minus this one point. But the term Arminian is almost like the term Yankee was when I was a boy in the South. Like nobody wanted to be called a Yankee. Like that's the worst, you know, like that. And, and like Arminianism, that became a term that just encompassed everything wrong. You know, that a person thought was wrong was summed up in that word if you were a Southerner. And I at times feel like, well, and I think Roger Olson maybe has argued this of like, hey, I want you to know what Arminians believe because more of you actually believe this than you're, you know, than you want to claim. So when I think about the tradition, I'm in complete agreement with Dave, like, the, these institutional denominations, I don't know what the future holds, but some of the key ideas espoused seem to be held by lots of Baptist lay people and preachers. Um, I'm just curious. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm on to something. I don't know. I'm just, it's something I've thought about. 
In, in my quick take, I would say that eternal security piece is a major factor. So I would say if if you ask them, like, hey, what is your theology, and you just and you didn't put the terminology of Arminianism or Calvinism up there, it would probably be a significant check on the Arminian side except on the eternal security piece. That would be like one of those things that they want to hold on to, I think. Um, though I do think the terms Arminian and Calvinist, both of them have their own baggage hmm. to where depending on the context, <laughs> if you use it, it's very much a pejorative and an untouchable. You don't want to be like those. I mean, I remember growing up, my mom, I guess my uncle became a Presbyterian. And so when I'm like asking her as a high school, like what in the world is a Calvinist? That was a bad thing. That, those were people who didn't want to evangelize. Um, that was the reason they became Calvinists, was so they didn't have to share the gospel, those sort of things. So, like, depending on who you're talking to, I think both of those terms can be very bad, boogeyman-ish terms. So, yeah, that's that's my take anyway. Okay. But I appreciate you guys for doing this. This was a lot of fun. So what I'm telling you guys, uh, for those who are listening, I'm going to put the, the book here, this particular one, The Arminian Baptist, plus Matt Pinson's 40 Questions on Arminianism. I'm going to put both of them in the description with links so that what you can do is you can go buy the books, learn more, educate yourself, and you're also supporting good people who are trying to do good work to help them build more resources so that we can resource our own Baptist tradition and just the Protestant tradition in general. I mean, Jesse was mentioning that Thomas Monk volume on uh, what it, the, the cure for the cankering air. I mean, the classic 17th century title, but like that's just classic uh, Christology there. So you're not only resourcing Baptist heritage, Arminian Baptist heritage, but just more generally Protestants in general. So go ahead and support them. Thanks uh, for listening, as always, to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.